Wild Research Bites, a podcast by the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. My name is Emily Fredriksson, and today we're going to talk about master studies. With me today is Anna Videen. She's a PhD student here at Wildlife, Fish and Environmental Studies. And we also have Stephanie Higgins, who's currently a master student here. Welcome. Thank you. Hey. So, how are both of you today? I'm very well, even though it's Monday. Feels even good. though it's yeah. Monday. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it'll be Friday soon. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Friday soon. So you both took the master program here, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So the master program is called Management of Fish and Wildlife Populations. Mm-hmm. But we also have two other master programs here at SLU Umeå. So one is called Euroforester, and there's a new one coming up in this, this fall. Um, it's called Forest Ecology and Sustainable Management. But anyway... Let's talk about your master studies. So, Anna, why did you pick this master program? Well, um, I did my bachelor in biology at Lund University. And um, I really enjoyed it, but it was very broad and a lot of focus on just basic biology and nature conservation and ecology. Um, And I did an internship or a summer job at Grimse Research Station. It's in Sweden, um, right? Yes, exactly, in Sweden. Uh, and it's also part of SLU. And there I met a lot of people uh, that did stuff I was more interested in. So more towards wildlife ecology and animal ecology, but also management. Um, and that's where I started to think about that maybe I wanted to do a master at another place than Lund. And uh, they also advised me to do this master here uh, at SLU. So I looked it up and it felt very nice. And yeah, that's how it was pretty much. So you're from south of Sweden? I am from Värmland, Karlstad, which is like around Stockholm area. Um, I said north of Sweden before, <laughs> but now when I live here in Umeå, <laughs> it's anymore. south of Sweden. Um, but yeah, I hmm. lived in the very south when I did my bachelor too in Lund. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, Stephanie, why did you end up in Umeå? Because you're not even from Sweden. No, I'm from Canada. Um, I did my bachelor's in zoology at the University of Reading in England. Um, And then I stayed there for two years to work in consultancy. So I did two seasons, one with fish and one with terrestrial vertebrates mostly. Um, And then... I wanted to move back to Canada and I was looking at master's programs there. Um, it's really different process though to get in. There's um, there's not really programs in the same way. So you have to be accepted with a supervisor before you can apply mm-hmm. and that depends on funding. And there weren't a lot of projects that were really interesting to me. So it would have taken probably years to find something that I was interested in oh and I am impatient so I started looking elsewhere in Europe and since my mom is German and I have German citizenship as well um I found this one in Sweden and thought that looks nice Sweden looks nice (laughs) cool um yeah and um as you know John who's Canadian is really involved in the master's program and so he called me up to tell me about it and seemed like it would be a good good fit. Cool. So what what then is your overall experience with, with the MOSCO program? Because you're at the end of it now. Right? Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I have four months left. Yeah. 
Um, I I really liked the coursework, uh, especially I think it was the best statistics class I've ever had. Um, I, usually I don't find it very easy to learn that much in statistics classes because it's all very theoretical and not very practical and at the end of it you you're you just feel like what can I do now <laughs> with this but the census techniques course was really good and I felt like it actually really helped for writing my thesis um and I also like how like the contact hours that we have I think is the best of anywhere I've ever been what do you mean with contact hours? Uh, I mean, like we have, there are 15 credit courses, right? So mm. we have yeah. classes almost every day, three hours a day, and you have pretty, pretty close contact with the professors. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's just a lot different than other places with that have large class sizes and you almost never meet them face to face. I see. Cool. Anna, what do you thought? Yeah, think about I, the I really agree. I think the census technique course was also very good um, because it was very applied, as Steph said. It wasn't just like rough stats that you don't know what to do with, but it was like, yeah, what do you do with this data? How do you handle it? How do you treat it? And what do you do with it afterwards? But the course I enjoyed the most was the human dimension course. Hmm. Uh, so human dimensions of fish and wildlife management. Uh, and I felt that was a very important course that I've never seen anything like it before or heard anything about such a course. Um, so I think that really adds on to something very important um, that I can use in my PhD as well. How human interacts with each other and how attitudes and values are very important in management. Um yeah, but overall, a very good master program, which I really um, recommend for students to take if they're interested in wildlife, ecology, and biology, but also if they want to see how you apply it and how the management work. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about what what is your experience like um, a master compared to bachelor's studies? What do you think is the difference or what do you feel is the difference? Um, I don't know. I feel like over all these years, it sort of gradually becomes the next level, I guess. And then when you look back at the beginning, you think that's the only time you can see how mm. different it is. It's so much more in-depth and specific. Um, and if I had sat in on one of these classes in my first year of my bachelor's, I would have been very lost, I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. It's hopefully you didn't feel lost no, when you took it. <laughs> I, yeah, I think everything builds on itself mm. pretty nicely. And I think it also, if this is your interest and this is what you want to do, that the further along you get, you only become more committed to doing the work and to learning about it. So even though it becomes more difficult, more complicated, you like it even more. Yeah. So I think that's kind of, or for me anyway, some people just are like, oh, this is hard. <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to do this. But yeah, we kind of push the boundary all the time. Like what we're... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. capable yeah. of. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also more your own responsibility, how you want to tackle the 
master program instead of the bachelor program. Like yeah. for me, bachelor was like a lot of basic courses that you felt that I just have to do this for the sake. Like I just have to yeah, do it that's true. to get my credits kind of. But now it's more you can tackle every course from your own perspective and um, it's up to you what you want to do with it uh, kind of. Yeah. And I think we have a lot more freedom of of what we can do with our assignments here. Whereas, I mean, I had classes in my bachelor's where everyone had to write an essay on the same topic or write a scientific paper on the same data, same topic. And I mean, that must be awful to mark, mm, <laughs> first yeah. of all. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't really help people learn as well because you're not researching what you're interested in. So... Yeah, I think we have we've had a lot of freedom. Pretty much every major assignment is just there's some specific things that we have to cover, but we can choose any topic, any species from anywhere in the world. And I think that's it helps people get excited. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the idea anyway, that you get more and more freedom when you progress through your university studies. Yeah. So, but it's. It's good that it's actually your experience too and not just the idea. Exactly. Yeah, I really want to know about your thesis thesis work too. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe we start with Anna since yeah. you finished yours and yes, now you're I doing am. a PhD. So what what did you do your master's about? Well, uh, I did my master thesis about bark stripping by red deer on Norway spruce. Um, and it was one supervisor here from SLU Umeå. But then I also had my main supervisor at SLU Alnarp uh, and also one at Hagskolan i Halmstad. Um, so, um, and I did this because I also did my bachelor thesis on pretty much the same topic uh, with the same supervisors or some of them were the same. And um, I just thought it was a very interesting topic because it it is interaction between forestry. I'm very interested in forestry. Uh, but it also interacts with wildlife uh, and it's a human-wildlife conflict. Uh, so it's a hot topic. And yeah, that's why I wanted to do it for my master as well. Uh, so I did a 60 credit. So one year. So one year, mm -hmm. yeah. And I was done at end of November. Yeah, yeah. last year. Like, yeah, exactly, yeah. last year, <laughs> November 2018. Um, yeah, it was a very cool project. It was in Skåne, southern part of Sweden where we had enclosures with red deer and we fed them um, oilseed rape plants, so raps in mm, Swedish. Right. Uh, and red deer, what's that in Swedish? Kronjort. Ah, right. Yeah, Thank exactly. Um, and we wanted to look at the influence of that on bark stripping, but we also measured other things such as temperature and diversity and uh, came up with A some cool bark results. Bark stripping? What is, I mean kind of sounds intuitively what it is, but yeah. is it, do, they, do they eat the bark? or why They do, do, they do exactly. Okay. They consume the bark. And it's been ongoing research about this for decades and ages, but yeah, which has led to several different theories, but one doesn't really know uh, why they do it. Um, it's a part of their diet and it's a big problem, of course, for foresters um, because it results in damage on the trees, of course. Um so yeah, it was a very exciting project and it feels very nice that it's done now. <laughs> <laughs> Signed, sealed, <laughs> delivered, yeah. <laughs> it's very nice. What was your like um, main result or like what do you bring from it? 
Um, well, our main result was that they actually eat quite a lot of bark during spring as well, um, which, well, usually the idea is that they eat a lot of bark during winter because they have nothing else to eat, so they eat the bark. Um, when there's low forage availability, they feed on the bark instead. But here we actually had quite high forage availability, both grass and oilseed rape and other plants. But they increased their bark stripping um, in beginning of May. They had like this massive peak and then it decreased again. So we think that this is because of a switch in diet because of like plant phenology, like a green up going from, yeah, during winter when there's not a lot of green plants to eat. And then it switches uh, when everything starts to grow and get green. And they also get a switch in their own diet, um, which will then maybe result in an urge to compensate by feeding on fiber. Um, so it's a very complicated system and I won't go into it in detail, but no, we saw I don't that. think, but it's interesting because it's a big economical it thing. It is. Of course. Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's also becoming more and more problematic when red deer are moving up uh, in northern part of Sweden too. Yeah. So with it's the warming probably. Exactly. With the climate, increasing temperatures and all of that, yeah. Yeah, because in north of Sweden right now, we basically only have, what is it called? I forget the English names all the time. The mm. tiny, the tiniest one. Roe deer. Roe deer. deer. Yeah, thank, thank exactly. You. Yeah. Roe deer and moose yeah. up here mostly. Exactly, um, yeah. But you have more of a, is it like a four, like at least four species, right? Yes. In south of Sweden? Yeah, exactly. In south of Sweden, we have almost all of them. Um, yeah. So that is... And wild boar coming too, uh, Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's changing. Mm -hmm. It is changing and also need for a different kind of research. Yeah. Also more That's applied. True. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's very different from what I did. Yeah. My master's thesis on but <laughs> Steph, what did you do with your master? Oh, you're doing it right now. What yeah, are you doing? I am in the <laughs> throes of analysis right now. Mm. Um, so I... Um, trying to build a pedigree for wolverines in Scandinavia using... A pedigree? Yeah. What is that? Um, so it's like you get it most commonly with domestic animals where you re record the father and mother and offspring over generations. Um, it's with wild animals, you can either watch them all the time, and but that can still be inaccurate because even monogamous animals will mate with other animals like cheat on their spouse <laughs> so you get multiple paternity sometimes um but wolverines are really difficult you can't really go out and just watch them because they don't like people and they like to live where people can't really go a lot as well so we have um genetic data from the last about 10 years um collected by the governments of the three countries so like the county administration board here and the equivalent in Norway and Finland because they monitor the carnivores so closely so any like carcass of an animal scat scent marking that they can get dna from they have the dna on record so we are fortunate enough to have all of this and it's almost 2000 individual animals in my sample Ooh, that's a lot yeah it's a crazy amount especially for a wolverine because past studies it's difficult to get high numbers of them 
Is it from what time period? Um, the earliest samples are from 2004, but the majority of them are 2010 to now. Um, so, yeah, so I am looking at SNP genotypes and um, trying to find the parents and the offspring and the siblings and put it all together. And by building pedigrees for wild populations, you can look at you can look at loads of different things. I'm going to be focusing on dispersal distance and direction. Um, and what is that? If you would explain it to so, my grandma. <laughs> so a lot of animals, um, their main um, mechanism for not being inbred is to the young ones will move into a new place. So wolverines are similar to a lot of other animals in this way that when the young are old enough, when they're sexually mature, they will leave their mother's area and it is better for the population. And so it's been selected for, for them to go far away and to find an unrelated female to mate with so that it sort of gets that genetic material away. Um, and it's sort of... The general thinking is that the females often stay and the males will disperse. Um, but it, that's not always how it is in reality. So I guess we'll have to, I'm not really at the point where I can see that yet, but that's what I'm focusing on. But with pedigrees, you can also look at individual fitness and I mean, other, other forms of movement like migration and range expansion and things like that. And there's just lots of lots of things you can see from that. How did you manage to end up with this thesis subject? Well, I um, I originally tracked down my supervisor, Joran Spong, because I thought his uh, research was really interesting. So I, yeah, I tracked him down and found him in his office and asked him what he had. <laughs> um, and originally, I was supposed to be working on red foxes. Um, because he has this project also with the Norwegians down in the south of Sweden. Um, and so I spent um, a couple of weeks in the summer working on that project, so in the field work, and we captured some baby foxes, and that was really fun. <laughs> um, and then when I got back here in September, he said, oh, I've got a better project for you. Oh. <laughs> Did you agree? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he said... He said, do you mind switching from foxes to wolverines? Because the data set is much better. And I said, yes. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it seems like it's some people like, you know, you can there's posters or you can like apply for your master thesis project or some people ask professors or, you know. Yeah, like there's a pretty big list that's published on the website um, with yeah a lot of projects that you can choose from. Um And there were one or two that I would be interested in, but I, um, yeah, I, I wanted to do something with genetics because then it, I mean, it's very cutting edge and it's also very broad in some ways. So it doesn't narrow you down to one species or one ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Like you have the skills to work anywhere and do like, I could just do the same thing on like a parrot in the Caribbean or, yeah. you know, whatever. So I like that aspect of it. And I also find it really interesting um, 
even though I'm a bit of a beginner with this molecular stuff, yeah. uh, <laughs> I always find the results really interesting and the inferences. And I think it could be really valuable moving forward. Yeah. Do you have any future plans talking about that? Um, I'd still like to move back to Canada. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'll be sad to leave Sweden, though, because I like it here. But it's been seven years since I've been home, so... Yeah, sounds reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, next question to Anna. Mm -hmm. Major challenge during your thesis? Oh, if you had any. Yeah, many. Or many. <laughs> <laughs> many. Um, oh, that is difficult. It's like a um, roller coaster. I think everyone says that too. Like whenever you yeah. ask someone in the, yeah, in the lunchroom or something, like, how's it going for you? It's like, Every other day, it's like, oh my god, it's no, it's I'm not moving forward, I'm going backwards, and then suddenly everyone is like happy, and it's like, oh my god, I had this great idea, and now it's like moving forward so quickly, everything is going very well, so it's like very much ups and downs, yeah, and standing pretty much, you feel that you're on the same page all the time, but in your head, I would say you're moving forward. But then it feels like you're going backwards and then it's like a major step forward. And it's yeah. like, but it, I think that's also it, the fun part with it. It's too. not like a measurable amount forward every no, exactly. day, which is kind of difficult to yeah. deal with because it would be sometimes months where you're just like, no, nothing is happening. Nothing is moving forward. Exactly. And then, and then you'll make this massive move one week or something. Yeah. And then it's so exciting. Yeah. But, okay, the major challenge then, to no, answer if, your if question, you, if, if you want, uh, I would think say, of, of course, the stats. I think that's also, like, an answer for almost everyone, it feels yeah. like, because just picking the right model, doing it in R, which is a program, we worked with it for one course, but that was pretty much like a crash course, basic. Uh, it um, takes a long time, I think, yeah, to it be does. comfortable in it yeah. because there's so many packages. It's like endless. Yeah, it's basically an, like an open-ended uh, programming. Yeah, it's a language. Software. Yeah, it's a language. And like our statistics course, I think we learned like how to say hello and order yeah, the menu, exactly. <laughs> Pretty introduce much. ourselves, yeah. and then you get to your thesis and someone's just talking at you and you're just thinking, oh, I'm not fluent in this yeah. language. Exactly. That's how it is. But also not just getting to learn the language of R. I would say it's also finding the, the right statistical model for your, for your question. Um, and I hadn't even, like, touched upon that before, uh, like generalized linear mixed effect model like what is that even i have no idea <laughs> but like now Greek. i've done one so i <laughs> but yeah I, but that's the fun part too that you're just like thrown into it and have to dig into it yourself mm. um yeah, and you learn a lot a lot of, lot of different yeah. skills it's yeah. slow but i think you learn a lot yeah definitely and i think everyone is moving forward slowly every day even though it doesn't feel like it <laughs> yeah 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 i think so too do you have any Thing that comes to mind, Steph? Major challenges. Yeah. I think the point before you start your analysis, when you're thinking about starting analysis, I think that's the hardest part because I personally, uh, I want to plan everything. So I always 
before I will try something, I want to make sure it's the right thing always. And so I will waffle around. I think I waffled <laughs> around for like two months, probably um, being like, oh, what should I use? What kind of thing should I do? How am I going to do this? And uh, my supervisors basically just told me, just just do something. <laughs> Try. Yeah. 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 And I think it also, it always helps to think about my first supervisor, my bachelor's. He told me, he kept saying, what story do you want to tell? And so that helps you pick what you're going to do. So I think with my project, there's so many things I could focus on that I was, I was like, oh, it'll just come out later, but it's too difficult to do that. <laughs> too much data. So, yeah, I just cut some things out of my mind and Yeah, the possibilities are usually too big mm. to fit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I totally agree with you on that too. Like you, you have an idea on what to do and then you Google and it's like... <laughs> Oh no, maybe I should do this instead. Yeah, never this better. <laughs> and it's like it's, when you're a master student, you've never done anything like this before, and then it's very difficult to focus on the right things, as you say, yeah. because then your supervisors can come into the room and be like, "Why are you reading about this? This is not important." And it's like, <laughs> "How should I know? I don't know. I thought this was very important." So I think that is, yeah, that was very difficult too, but that also makes you learn. I think a lot of new things. Yeah. Yeah. What would be your be your number one tip then for somebody starting to their master thesis? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is very difficult. Um, or like, what would you have hoped somebody would tell you before you started, or what would you tell yourself? I don't know. Like w when I did it, I felt that. Because I'm that kind of person that also like to plan and I also like to be kind of strictly supervised. I don't know how to say, but I like directions and I like... Deadline. Yeah. Mm. Mm, and that is a tough thing. It is tough, but I also felt that not having that and being quite independent was actually very good because otherwise I wouldn't have learned what I did. Uh, if someone just told me that you should do this and you should do it this way uh, and be done by this point, I mean, that would be easier, but I wouldn't have gained that much knowledge. So I think my tip is like to stay calm. <laughs> it's going to be okay. okay. And I think just enjoy it. Keep it's going to be ups on. and downs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's going to be ups and downs mm -hmm. and just... When you're in like a down period, yeah, it's going to go up soon, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes when you're in a down period, it's just good to take a day and go skiing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Go Start skiing. again the next day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> go skiing again the next day. That yeah. sounds awesome. Yeah. So I was thinking about some study technique things. Because now you're both masters, almost soon masters. God. Um, and I was thinking, like, what w do you do to learn? It's a very broad question, but best study technique or, like, what works best? I'm really bad at studying for exams. <laughs> um, I think I have always preferred to do assignments. 
um, because I think like the reading and searching for the material yourself is really how how you learn better or how I learn better. But if I have to memorize some things for an exam, I don't I don't really know how to do it, I guess. No, but then reading and like writing by yourself is yeah. something that works. I guess I should just, if I'm going to study for an exam, I should just write a small paper on every topic. But I mean, that would take me ages. Well, for me, I'm that kind of person that I can't just read and take it in. I need to like do something actively to get it into my head. So when I read... It takes so much time because I have to write at the same time. So I read and I write and then I read again and I write again and then I read what I've written. And it's like a long process. So it takes time, but it works. Um, and just studying for exams, just like memorizing stuff. One thing I did for my bachelor that actually worked quite <laughs> good is that I like recorded myself when I was reading. Um, or like, yeah, I talked to my iPhone, recorded myself, and then I listened to it. Um, for me, because for me, it's like I need to talk to myself and like, this is, okay, this molecule goes here and it does this and this is how it works. Uh, so that worked for me. Um, but I think everyone is different. Some people can just like suck in information from a paper and memorize it, but... Yeah, for me, I need to do something. like yeah, Formulate it somehow. Yes, exactly. But I also tried that uh, recording myself. Mm -hmm. And I also think it, it works kind of the same as talk or like studying in a group yeah. or discussing it with yeah. somebody that you have to explain it even to your own iPhone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it yeah. helps yeah. to formulate sentences and like explain it. Yeah, definitely. Or just like write things down on a whiteboard in different colors or do like a mind map or I don't know. My office now is just like full of notes everywhere because yes, I, it is, it <laughs> is. <laughs> because I just need to get information out of my head, I guess, because otherwise it disappears. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some people are really good at listening and yeah, and taking in information. Mm -hmm. But then, I mean, the, the main, what should we say, teaching activity we have At universities, usually lectures, mm, which is listening. Exactly. So what do you think about that? Does it work? Um, that depends a lot on the professor, like the lecturer. Yeah, it does. Um, Because it, it does. can be, it can just be someone talking at a yeah. bunch of people. And that, I don't think that works very well. But I think the good lectures are very, I mean, they're really animated if they're, If they have a lot of charisma, then you kind of can't help but sit there and take it all in. Mm. Uh, I still will always handwrite my notes because I feel like the writing actually, I don't know, it it's like doing two things at once. You're listening mm. and you're handwriting, so, so it's more cemented. But if I'm typing at the same time, then I, it's harder for me to remember. No, I agree. And I think actually one of the best lectures I've had wasn't even on a topic that I'm interested in, but it was <laughs> an old professor and he was like too old to using a PowerPoint because <laughs> everyone nowadays, they have PowerPoints yep. and usually they're and like, doesn't use them well. No, no, because it's just like tons of text on it and oh, yeah, you don't have time to take it in. You don't have time to write notes and he didn't have 
one slide he just talked and he wrote on the whiteboard um and it was perfect because you had time to listen but you also had time to write down your own notes um so that was one of the best lectures i've been to and i think um i think some professors need to like change their way of teaching uh, to yeah. make it better for students but also maybe change the way um maybe not have lectures in the way hmm. they do maybe that leads me to the next what i was thinking about was like mm. what does a good teacher do mm. then i said a few things but mm. i mean yeah not to have too much information mm. like yeah, on your I mean, slides the or? worst is a slide full of text and formulas and nothing else and it's mm. just like it's almost like you you don't even read it because you've just got this thing in your face and you just you're like no <laughs> no but um i think it's good when they mix in videos of things or a lot of examples rather than just theories because sometimes the theories can be a bit dry and having lots of like relating it to things that really happen is a bit easier to understand and some of our courses we had um field trips and things like that and that was really good i know it's difficult to organize but um like last spring we had a a week-long field course to the hunting association down south and that was really good so we we had so many lectures. We were in lectures from like eight until five. Um, and half of them were outside. So we were like walking around the fields, looking at different cover for game birds. And then we spent like a whole evening sitting in the high towers, um, doing like practice deer surveys. I was like, get the um connection to the real real life or the real yeah, yeah. Mm. what is it like we mostly study nature so mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah exactly. yeah makes sense what does a really good teacher do hmm. um no i would say i agree with stuff there too but i would say also to do the lectures slow and to let it sink in into everyone mind and not just throw information at us instead just try and explain every concept mm -hmm. slow and maybe have more lectures instead of just one long lecture yeah. uh, filled with information um and try to do it in new ways interactive um, discussions i don't know maybe something like that i think one of the worst things that they can say is like have a slide with some formulas or theories and say something like, well, obviously you guys all know this and just skip to the next bit. Yeah. Because there's like, always oh, going to no, be stop. someone that's like, especially here, you have students from all over the world and someone will be like, I don't know that actually, but I'm now scared to say anything because I should know that, but I don't. So it's, yeah, I think it's, it can be maybe a bit slow for some of some students if they know it but I think it's always better to just make sure that everything is completely covered yeah it's, and then it's a big difference when going especially into your master's thesis I guess that then you get yeah you don't have like 
courses anymore, but then you have a supervisor mm. and that's a completely different thing. So what do you, what's your like, how is a good supervisor then? Because it's, a, I mean, it's a very important role, the supervisor yeah. in and the thesis. I have noticed that they vary a yeah, lot. Yeah, of course. Um, and of course it varies what you think or what different people think is a good supervisor. But yeah. So you can only talk for your own experience. Yeah. Um, I think my bachelor's and my supervisor now, I think they're very similar in a lot of ways. Um, they're really accessible. So it's not hard to find them. And they never, when you do find them, <laughs> they never make you feel like they don't have time to talk to you, hmm. uh, even if they probably don't. Um Because I guess the last thing you really need when you're feeling stuck is for someone to sort of treat you like just because you're a master's student that it doesn't, you don't really matter that much. Um, so I guess, I guess that sort of thing is important. I mean, you don't have to see them every day and have them hold your hand all the time, but it's nice for them to check on you and yeah. <laughs> things like that. Mine checks on me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, but I agree that it's they are very different, um, and it's also up to you as a student what kind of supervision that you want. But I think it's it's difficult because I it's a fine line between giving guidance and telling the students exactly what to do. Um, because I think a master project is about doing it yourself, but having supervision and guidance, like guiding you towards the right answer, kind of. Um, and I assume that's very difficult for a supervisor to do. Um, maybe not tell you that you should do this, but just tell it in a way that you understand it yourself, kind of. Um, but I also think that one thing that maybe us from Sweden miss sometimes is giving compliments and um, saying that this was really good, good job. Because I think here in Sweden, sometimes we tend to forget that. Um, we just assume that people know when it's good. Yeah, and exactly. That That's not true. I mean, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think that's also good to do, yeah. to encourage and to give compliments when they've actually done something good. Um, yeah, because it makes you feel good. <laughs> yeah, and it helps motivate you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, I guess it can start to feel like nothing you do really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah, I'm very happy you both came here, talked to me in this podcast about your experience with the management fish and wildlife populations mm -hmm. master here. Yeah. So if you have nothing else to add, I would like to thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Very See much. you in the office yeah. later. Yep. See you. Fika. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to both Anna and Steph for joining us here of another episode of Wild Research Bites, a podcast from SLU. My name is Emily Ferguson. Next episode, we will talk about South Africa and the PhD course there. Oli has done some interviews and he will be back in March now from South Africa uh, for the next episode. So we look forward to him being back. There will be links in the description for some master thesis related um, resources. Also the email address of both Anna and Steph if you have any questions for them. And of course, you can always reach us on Twitter, Facebook and our email. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>